Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord. I'm John Fusco. I'm Charles Hain. I'm Eric Lures. And it's January 10th, 2019. On this week's show, our final episode in this format. We it's will... the final episode. Dun, 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 dun. Wow. This is amazing. Uh, so other than si- it's a sing-along episode, we're also going to review the most significant tech and news stories from our time as a podcast, our favorite movies past and to come, and share our biggest filmmaking advice from the past three years. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountains, everybody, welcome to this final episode of Indie Film Weekly. We are coming at you, as always, from Brooklyn, New York, home of some of No Film School, and we're here for one last time to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy working on films. Wow, <clears throat> no one told me this was the final episode. I guess this is how I have to find out. <laughs> oh, well. Supplies. I guess I'll pack up all my stuff. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great one, Liz. Funny story, I uh, slept in... Um, a little too late this morning, my alarm didn't go off, and uh, I'm actually not here in the booth with anyone right now, but I'm going to do my best to make it seem like I was here for the final episode of Indie Film Weekly, and, uh, you know, maybe we'll have some fun too while we're doing it. Throwing some ad-libs, uh, you know, like, I think if anything, this is going to be a great way to go out because it'll really demonstrate my prowess as an editor as I seamlessly uh, include myself into a conversation that I wasn't actually in. So uh, we'll see what happens here. Anyway, we thought uh, we'd kick off the show in our regular fashion with headlines, but this time we would review some of the biggest stories that have come across our desks over the last three years. Now, exactly no one will be surprised to hear that the story I chose to review is the Me Too movement and how it has changed our industry over the last couple years. This one is particularly incredible to me because it originated in our field and it had cultural ripples across many industries and geographic lines. It really touched the world. Um, I'll remind us of a bit of the history, but don't worry, I'm not going to dwell in creepy dude corner long before I share some of the positive changes that have come out of the tumultuous reckoning that we've gone through. In the first weeks of, oh, do we need the Wayback Machine? Yeah. You'll get that later. Thanks. You're right, Eric. In the first weeks of October 2017, both the New York Times and the New Yorker magazine released well-researched articles detailing decades of sexual coercion and abuse of dozens of women by then-media mogul and indie film icon Harvey Weinstein. He was almost immediately fired by his production company, The Weinstein Company. Only a few days later, Roy Price, head of Amazon Studios, was suspended from his position after being accused of sexual harassment. The following week, the Me Too movement, started by activist Tarana Burke, took off like wildfire globally on Twitter after actor Alyssa Milano encouraged people to share their stories of sexual harassment and abuse using the Me Too hashtag. Then, in the following months, several high-profile entertainers, media execs, and politicians were publicly called to task with various claims of sexual misconduct. In June, a study reported that at least 417 high-profile executives and employees were outed by the movement over the first year and a half after Weinstein. I mean, wow. So what has happened that actually affects our day-to-day? Well, to name a few. One, the Time's Up organization grew out of the Me Too movement. In addition to raising millions for legal funds for people who've experienced sexual assault, it's worked with the Producers Guild of America to create anti-sexual harassment guidelines that include training for all cast and crew and designated people 
on set that workers can approach to report any incidents. We learned about inclusion riders, where high-profile actors or crew can demand at least 50% diversity in casting and crew of productions they sign on to. We learned about intimacy coordinators, like the one who works on this show. You're not wrong, Liz. Yep. Yeah, she's pretty good. She's <laughs> yeah, pretty good. she's great. Um, they joined sets to help orchestrate safe sex scenes and are now mandatory at big companies like HBO. Film festivals as influential as Cannes have pledged a commitment to gender-balanced programming by 2020. Other festivals are making a push to invite more diverse film critics into their press pools. I, for one, hope this trend continues, and I will work to make it so. For those who don't like these changes as much, I say let your work speak for itself. And if you can keep up with the new competition, you'll be just fine. As for the rest of us, may we enjoy more inclusive, more comfortable, less creepy sets for years to come. Who's going to put people in creepy dude corner now that we're retiring from the podcast? Well, I think that's what this, uh, you know, on-set coordinator is for. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. They'll take over. Thanks, Liz. And now let me do my part. So maybe my memory only goes back so far, but from what I remember, the phenomenon that disrupted the industry most over the past couple years was the birth of MoviePass. I first heard about the service maybe two or three years ago from a friend or two, but I never fully understood how it was possible. It sounded too good to be true, and at the time, it wasn't very popular. A lot of theaters still didn't want any part of it. The idea for the company itself actually harkens back all the way to 2011. Entrepreneurs Stacy Spikes and Hammett Watt started the MoviePass service in San Francisco with the hopes of letting people see a movie a day for a monthly fee. More than a year later in October 2012, a beta version was rolled out nationwide with monthly prices ranging between $29 and $34 a month. It continued this policy and even partnered with AMC in 2014, who noted that subscription services could be the way of the future for moviegoers. Fast forward three years later to 2017 when MoviePass captures the eye of a company called Helios and Matheson. They buy controlling stake in the company for $27 million, and in what was both their greatest moment and their downfall, reduce prices to a startlingly low $9.95 a month for unlimited movie watching. More than 150,000 new users signed up in just two days following the announcement. This is when I signed up myself. The announcement doesn't sit well with everyone, however. AMC responded by breaking off their partnership and barring MoviePass users from their theaters. In a prescient statement, they said that, quote, the price level is unsustainable and only sets up consumers for ultimate disappointment down the road. Eric, wasn't that exactly what happened with me and you and our MoviePass cards? Yes, it was. It looked like things were going MoviePass's way up until April 2018, however. The subscription service had exploded in popularity, going from 20,000 subscribers to 3 million in less than a year. Behind the scenes, however, Helios at that point had lost $20 million a month since it bought the company the previous September. That's around $150 million since it was first purchased. Here's where the public started noticing some problems in the company's game plan. Namely, it makes no sense and could never be profitable. At that time, the subscription service still cost $9.95 a month, while the average movie ticket cost $9.16. In New York, it's more like $17. Am I right, guys? Now, MoviePass has to pay what you would be paying for the price of admission every time you go and see a movie using the service, which means that if you see more than one movie a month, the company takes a loss. If you see two movies, they pay double what they gain, three movies, triple, and on, and on, and on. Not good for a company whose main demographic seems to be cinephiles. 
None of this makes any sense for a company whose sole purpose for existing is for people to go see more movies. The average movie pass goer was attending one and a half movies per month, which for profitability purposes was far too many. In order for it to retain profitability at that pace, their critical size, or the number of subscribers it takes to reach profitability, would need to be somewhere around 15 to 20 million subscribers. And in July 2018, we saw The Ugly. MoviePass suffers a service outage because it quite literally ran out of money. They were forced to borrow $5 million after admitting they cannot pay their bills. And at this point, the company has announced it will raise its subscription price from $10 to $14.95 a month, introduce surge pricing for popular movies, and limit the viewing ability of blockbuster releases. Meaning you couldn't go see a hot title for maybe two or three weeks after it came out. On August 2nd, 2018, a little less than a month later, Helios and Matheson Analytics slides 56% on the stock market in one day. On August 6th, 2018, MoviePass reduces the number of movies that subscribers can see from one a day to three a month. And one week later, on August 16th, the restrictions continued to pile up as MoviePass said subscribers will be able to choose only from six movies daily with limited showtimes. And that essentially was the end of MoviePass as we knew it. In November of 2018, Helios and Matheson Analytics reported that it lost $130 million over its last quarter, one quarter, during which MoviePass also saw a quote-unquote significant decline in subscribers. Even though things turned ugly for MoviePass, ultimately this has turned into a huge boon for moviegoers. The popularity of the subscription service forced exhibitors to take notice. AMC announced their own subscription service at $20 a month, which they found to be the price point for profitability, and MoviePass's new tiered service, which they announced last month for uh, 2019, seems to reflect that judgment. I can only think that other larger theater chains will start offering up their own services as well. But what does this mean for the larger film industry as a whole? Only good things. People are actually going to see movies again. And what's more, they're going to see smaller movies that they previously may not have shelled out 10 to $15 for. The subscription service is making audiences braver than they ever have been before as a result, allowing them to take risks on edgier festival favorites like Hereditary and documentaries like RBG and Won't You Be My Neighbor. So, though it's no longer in my wallet, MoviePass will forever be in my heart and will continue to change the game for years to come. Its parent company is just... You know, not not that smart. I have a worse word written here, but I'm not going to say it. And I didn't even mention the fact that they distributed Gaudi. So they did that, too. Which uh, I think was Liz's favorite movie of 2018. Liz, if you disagree, please say something now. So, Charles Haynes, since this is the last time for a while for Indie Film Weekly, why don't you let us know what you think kind of are some of the biggest gear news stories from the last few years? It is kind of funny to have an opportunity to take stock after like a very rapidly changing series of years for film technology. So the first thing I should cover is that before joining the podcast way back in June 2016, I had taken sort of two years off from working in movies I'd worked for this billionaire in Arkansas, and then I'd renovated a house in St. Louis, and I hadn't really been around the film industry. And so when I came back and I started writing here and working movies again— Wait, I'm sorry. I can't just let that slide. You're just going to drop like I worked for this billionaire billionaire in Arkansas? Arkansas? I never told you guys about that. It needs to be its own podcast. Stay tuned, folks. I mean, all I will say is that in the South, billionaires are allowed to own towns. 
So this billionaire owns this town in Arkansas where, like, the mayor is appointed, the chief of police is appointed. Like, it is an entire private town. I'd move to Jason Momoa town. Oh, my. That's good gear, Charles. Is Jason Momoa a billionaire? Someday. You have to swim there, though. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, sorry, Charles. Go ahead. So... It was crazy for me to come back after only two years away. And one of the things I wanted to flag in this sort of look back in technology is two of the biggest things that had changed while I was gone. And the biggest onslaught that I really could see was DJI and Atomos, drones and monitor recorders. I wanted to single these two out because, first off, they're both very cool. But in both cases, it really took me a moment to notice how big the change was. Like, I'd flown a Phantom in 2015, but, like, for a week and just, you know, around, like, a field, I hadn't really gotten it in my bones how dramatically everything was changing now that stabilizers were being built into these things. And then the stabilizer camera combination with the Osmo and now the Osmo Mobile and all of these things, like, all of this tech coming together has been huge and I didn't really notice it and that was a big story for me. The other side of the equation was something that I really didn't get in the beginning, which is monitor recorders. Honestly, I first saw them and I was like, why? Like, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you just get a better camera? But finally, I got one and I started using it all the time with whatever camera was around. Like, I'd bring it with me when I was in L.A. and I'd borrow a friend's 5D or in New York with my Fuji or an EVA1 on a review or an FS5 Mark II. And holy cow, I totally get it now. You get all this great metadata right with your shots. Everything is straight to ProRes. You can bring it in right to edit without a transcode. There's a big touchscreen. You can apply all these looks. And what's really cool is you don't need to get a new one whenever you switch cameras. So like I had an X-T2, it worked with my Atomos. Then I wanted to swap out for an X-H1, so I'd get image stabilization. I sold my X-T2 on eBay, I got an X-H1, the price difference wasn't that massive, and it still works with my Atomos. So, you know, until we go from 4K to 8K, which is a while, my film half of the camera gets to stay the same. Like, look, modular stuff has a lot of cool perks. And in this case, taking, like, the film recording aspect of it and splitting it off into a second thing is actually really cool and useful. This leads me next to the other biggest camera thing that has changed in the last couple of years, which is we're finally at a place where mirrorless has totally taken over. When I started, DSLRs were still a thing. You were still hearing a lot of news about like the 5D Mark IV. It was still being discussed. The mirror in place, which like, let's be real. The mirror in place did nothing for filmmakers. As soon as you put it in video mode, it flopped that mirror out of place. It was a legacy thing that was left over from before digital cameras. But a lot of times when you have transitions, you have legacy technology that sticks with that transition. And the last two or three years have really been when we've finally seen mirrorless come into their own. First with smaller sensors like the GH5 and Fuji and then bigger sensors with Sony with the full frame. And then like three years after Sony did it, Canon and Nikon and Panasonic are finally doing full frame mirrorless now. And then just like two days ago, we saw the announcement that the Nikon full frame mirrorless is going to give out raw over HDMI to Atomos recorders. Wow. That's good gear, Charles. I know. It's like huge. It's also one of those things that like... Atomos at NAB last year was like, please, some manufacturer, give us raw for HDMI. We're ready for it. We want to do it. And uh, it's a really smart move for Nikon to put themselves ahead of uh, Canon and Panasonic and Sony, frankly, with full frame mirrorless 
giving you raw. Now, you buy that, you throw on, you know, for $3,000, you can have a raw shooting camera, uh, including an Atomos recorder. It's a really great combination. The only other option, of course, is the Blackmagic Pocket Cinema Camera, which is also mirrorless and shoots raw for like $1,300. So all of a sudden, like raw and mirrorless is becoming super affordable for large sections of the population. So that's super cool. I've got a little quickie I had to throw in there. I actually went back to add this, which is uh, I can't sum up the last couple of years in technology without shouting out to Jellyfish. There are devices that come out and think you see it and you're like, why didn't I think of that? That's not Jellyfish. Jellyfish is a product that everybody had thought of, everybody desperately wanted, and no one had gotten around to making. If you don't remember my review of the Jellyfish, it is like a... Um, all-in-one box that you can pull multiple computers from. So every editor, like I can't tell you the number of times students on set have been like, oh, hey, there's two Thunderbolt ports on that drive. Can I plug two laptops into it? It's an idea everybody has because it's immediately obvious that from one pool of media, more people working at once would be great, right? Jellyfish built the networking infrastructure and the sharing infrastructure and the RAID all in one box with a handle on top, and it totally works, and I love it. And if you've been thinking about shared storage, but you've been nervous about the engineering costs and want something you can mostly keep in your office, but then, like, occasionally bring to set, this is it. I did a job last summer. We took it to set. We had a machine downloading, a machine organizing, another machine transcoding, all just laptops plugged into this one box. We would even pull up a fourth laptop, and honestly, it was like a Surface. It wasn't even like a powerful laptop, but it was a Surface where we could get an Ethernet adapter, and then we could like watch clips with actors from that same single pool of media. This is something everybody who works in movies has wanted for a while, and Jellyfish finally did it. And uh, shockingly, it's been out for like more than a year now, and there's not like seven competitors. So there's some magic sauce that they're doing that put them far ahead of the curve, and I wanted to shout out th to them. Jellyfish everywhere who listen to this show are thanking you, Charles. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good pun. Tentacles. Yeah. Aw, Jellyfish. We should all go eat sushi to and, celebrate the last IFP. Oh, I love that. Um, IFP? IFW? IFW. Oh. IFP, yeah. No, I, I was there. <laughs> Did you eat sushi on... when you left? Oh yeah, on last day, definitely. That's a custom. You're a big sushi guy. Mm -hmm. Um for your for your final story, Charles, I'm predicting because I'm looking at our script. This is this is a big one. This is one that was very controversial. I, I and and frankly, controversy is not done. We are not over it. But my last big story of the last couple of years is I think Apple has finally come back around to caring about pro users. Uh it's not been a fast come back they're not begging they're not running back they're not like sitting outside the window with a jukebox saying please oh. but they are really starting to build things that cater to the openness and flexibility that pro users are looking for and it's something we haven't seen from apple in a really long time I remember starting to complain in like 2009 that Apple didn't feel like they were taking pros as seriously now that they had the sexy new consumer market to cater to with the sleek little iPhones where they made so much money. And like the 2013 Mac Pros, there was like a moment of like, is this maybe for us? But honestly, those are a really flawed product. I mean, there's no flexibility, very limited extensibility. You're just as likely, if you go to a post house today in 2019, to see a whole bunch of the original 2010 cheese grater Mac Pros as you are to see those little black trash cans. 
And when I'm working on one of those little black trash cans, I'm constantly hearing about how it was just in getting its logic board replaced or it was just in getting its graphics cards replaced. They weren't phenomenal. They also haven't updated it once since 2013, which tells you a lot about how they feel about it. Um, They just didn't feel like a super pro device. But in the last couple of years, there have been huge major revisions to Final Cut Pro, Fast and Furious. There is serious power coming out of the laptops now. They are collaborating with professional film tools like Atomos, where they collaborated with Pro as Raw. They worked with Blackmagic on the Blackmagic eGPU. It's really starting to feel like Apple is eager to engage and keep Pro customers. Hell, they even worked with Adobe to make it so that Adobe on a Windows machine can write ProRes, which is something that we've been waiting on for a decade and, like, only really Scratch had successfully figured out. But now this is an official, like, Adobe and Apple did it together writing ProRes on a Windows machine release. On top of that, the new Mac Mini is really great. For, like, $2,000, you can buy an eGPU and a Mac Mini. It'll have 10 gig Ethernet. It'll have blazing fast color grading processing through the eGPU. It'll have tons of modern ports and two of the old USB ports. If the eGPU fries, you can just swap it out and you don't have to have your whole machine down while it happens. Yes, there's a lot of rumors and hope that there's going to be a real new Mac Pro in 2019. Even once it's out, I still might be telling people to buy the Mac Mini and an eGPU. We're going to see what happens when the actual 2019 Mac Pro comes out. But uh, I honestly have to say that right now, it feels like Apple is really interested and engaging with filmmakers. And that's really cool. Mm, We'll see what the listeners say. Now, we weren't sure whether we should do an Ask No Film School question in this last episode. But instead of uh, mining the fields for something new, uh, I thought Charles had a really good idea to answer one that we hear all the time. And that is... Should I go to film school? What do you have to say? Oh, yeah. Well, we're all answering this, right? I have a big, long answer, but I see some other people's names in here. So I'll kick off with my answer first, which is it entirely depends upon who you are. First off, my bias. I both went to and enjoyed film school, and I teach in a film school, the Fierstein Graduate School of Cinema, which is a public and affordable film school here in Brooklyn. So everything I say is biased by the fact that I enjoyed my experience and I learned a lot in it and I currently work in one. But here's my thought on film school. There is so much knowledge online and on the internet that the purpose of film school has changed in the last 20 years. There's all this stuff that you used to have to go to the facility to learn, but now you can learn exposure and workflow and storytelling and film history and all sorts of other stuff in articles on platforms like No Film School or on our podcast like Indie Film Weekly, or you can go to YouTube or Wolf Crow, or there's so many other places where you can learn so much. And let's remember, it's not about the equipment anymore. In the 80s, Or 90s, you were going to film school because that was the only place you could get your hands on a great camera. But honestly, the camera in the cell phone in your pocket is better than the camera that I did 90% of my film school assignments on. Absolutely. Me too. Oh. Oh, yeah. So those 1990s arguments for going to film school I think are irrelevant. And I think if a film school is still trying to cater to the like, we have secret special knowledge and we have special equipment – I think it's missing the point a little bit. There is really expensive equipment that it's nice to go to film school so that you can get your hands on it. So the first time you have a professional job and someone's like, have you ever worked with the Red or Alexa? You can honestly say, yes, I have. 
that's a nice part of a film school. I'm not going to say equipment is no part of the package, but I don't actually think that's the key. For me, the things that a film school offers that you can't get anywhere else start with a dedicated time in your life to focus on getting better at making movies. I've gotten a lot of breaks in my career, a lot of opportunities, a lot of chances, some of them through film school and the relationships and the people I met there, a lot of them not. But I was better prepared when those breaks came to me because I'd spent three years in grad school worrying only about being a better filmmaker. That was it. I needed that time to grow in development. And if I'd had those same breaks without three years of learning, I would have made a lot of the mistakes that I made on film school projects where it didn't matter, on professional projects where I would have then not progressed as far in the industry because those professional jobs I didn't deliver on. So for me, I really needed that time, and a lot of people need that time so that when they get to their actual first client commercial, their first client music video, by the time their first feature comes along, I personally was better prepared for them because I'd spent that time. And that time isn't something you can get easily in life. It's really hard to carve out big chunks of time. There are things you can keep doing while you have a full-time job. For me, you can write every day with a job. Wake up an hour early, write a little bit every morning. You can totally do that while working. But it's really hard to practice filmmaking, big team filmmaking with a day job. And film school is an opportunity to have a lot of big team filmmaking experiences in a compact amount of time. Second, and this matters way more for some than others, the structure and deadlines of a film program are helpful. You know you're going to have a thesis your third year. You know that's coming. You're working on writing that. You have script deadlines. You have edit deadlines. There's all of this structure throughout to help you get there. Yes, there's infinite knowledge online, but sometimes what you need more than all the information in the world is to know that someone is going to read your script on this date and critique it, and then you're going to go shoot it, and then you're going to edit it, and someone's going to look at your edit and give you notes, and then there's going to be a screening, and your parents are going to be there, and you know that that date is coming, and you can't move it. Some need this. Others don't. There are totally super self-disciplined people out there who need it. Total respect. I also have a ton of friends who spent a decade trying to make a short film and just couldn't. And then went to film school and made a dozen short films in three years and a thesis they're really proud of and their careers moving in a different way. So I think that that structure is useful to some. The last thing, and this is actually for me in 2019, I think the most important thing that you can get out of a film school is a community. Film school is a magic time to be surrounded by a whole passel of other film nerds who all just want to get better. There's a lot of support. There's a lot of helping each other out on shoots. There's a lot of going to see movies together and sitting around at a bar afterwards arguing about that movie. There's a lot of, I'll do sound for you if you do sound for me. There's all of that knowledge and growth that you get out of a community. And there's even a little gentle competition where you watch someone and you're like, oh my God, they're getting better. Am I getting better? And you work a little harder and you grow and you've got that group energy together. And there's something special about that. And the reason why I mentioned it in 2019 is community is getting harder and harder to find. There are fewer and fewer opportunities for big group communities. In addition, the film industry is exceptionally freelance in nature. It's a very hard place to find community. You might go out and work on a film shoot with people where you spend five weeks in the Panamanian jungle together and it's like summer camp and you're all best friends. And then all of a sudden you're in Los Angeles and you don't see them again for a decade. That's very common in the film industry. <laughs> Jeez, that's sad. You all should see the look on the devastated look on it's Eric's so, face right like, now. It was like very inspirational. Now I'm getting really sad about this. You're right, Eric. But 
film school, I still see a lot of my film school friends to mm. this day. You're not wrong, Liz. I still regularly stay in touch with a lot of them. There's a longer term continuity there because of that long shared crucible of the experience when you first go through it. Now, those are you still in touch with any of the people you uh, worked for on the Arkansas Island owned by the billionaire? Uh, no, I don't talk to anybody from the Arkansas Island at all. <laughs> So the lesson is maybe go to film school. Definitely don't go to Arkansas. Or a film school in Arkansas. Oh, uh, now I don't know. I disagree. I got to say, Wilson, Arkansas is kind of a magic little place. And if you go, get the chocolate cake. Holy cow. Wilson <laughs> Cafe, chocolate cake. It is if like. If you go to Wilson. It is really worth it. That's our biggest takeaway from three years of Indie Film Weekly. <laughs> That's good gear, Charles. Now, those are three pluses. And a good film school really focuses on those attributes, in my opinion. But I also think a good film school should be affordable. I don't know that film school, even with those three things I'm, I'm saying are great, are worth hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, honestly. I know that there was a time where that number felt like, okay, I don't know that that number makes sense anymore. I think that um, like UCLA is one of the oldest public institutions, much more affordable. Fierstein, where I teach, much more affordable public institutions – I think if you don't get $100,000 to debt, NYU, USC, schools like that are probably worth it. I don't know if they're worth it if it's $150,000 of debt. I just don't. Having said that, I went to USC and walked out $170,000 in debt. Um, Oof. Yeah. It was 2005. We had a different attitude towards student debt then. It was before the crisis. It was before we really, like, it was the wrong attitude. I mean, <laughs> it it was, still sucks. It was an insane yeah. time. It's so weird to look back at 2002 and just be like, oh, there's this weird mass cultural delusion that the economy was always going to keep getting better and no amount of student debt was too much. And Ugh. it was just like, it's so crazy to look back at that. And now to be a professor in 2019 and talking to people and like, I respect how much more conscious my students are of the burden of student debt and how much more careful they are about keeping it low. My whole generation just didn't treat it like that. Everyone I know is still paying off their student debt. Yeah. So I would say that if you are considering film school, A, you get out of it what you put into it. Work super hard. Give everything you possibly can. Like, like absorb all of that information with all of the energy and effort you can. B, try and find a way to do it affordably with the lowest amount of debt possible. I think there's probably a reasonable amount of debt. I think $25,000 in student loan debt is probably something that could be paid off in a reasonable amount of time. Um, again, that number is going to be based on you and where you are in your life and what you're comfortable with. Um, I, I certainly think NYU and USC can provide valuable experiences if you can find a way to do it without more debt than a house. And um, everyone's journey through the film industry is going to be different. Film is not like law or medicine where a terminal degree is a requirement. I know many people who dropped out of high school and have had happy, successful careers. No one is ever going to check if you got an MA or an MFA or a BA before hiring you. Although they will check if you want to teach. If you're ever like, ah, oh, maybe someday I want to teach in film school, you'll almost definitely need an MFA generally. But it can be a really wonderful experience if you walk into it knowing that it's one avenue of sort of lifelong learning. And I will say this, I'm 14 years out of film school at this point, and I'm still learning stuff about the film industry and storytelling and making movies all the time. So, yeah, no film school is ever, there won't be a film school that ever gives you all of the information on film. But hopefully a good one will will help you not be saddled with so much debt. 
but give you a chance to really grow into being the filmmaker you want to be. Thanks, Charles. I think you covered that beautifully. Don't really have anything to add. Yeah, I guess this, it, uh, what I also miss about the school in college in general, too, is that community that you mentioned. I think all the resources that you can have outside of that can keep you a little bit more isolated and on your own single path. And I do miss those discussions and just being around that on a daily basis weekly basis. Um, well, I well, I still had that sometimes. Well, and the beauty of community is low stakes social interaction, right? Because people always make the argument where it's like, if you really want to see people, you'll make the effort. But it's like, honestly, if I've been on the train for an hour and a half when I get to dinner, I'm already a little grumpy. If they took a train an hour and a half, they're already a little grumpy and like our expectations. And, and so if someone's not like, you're just like, yeah, I'm tired. I'm going to go home. Whereas like, oh, we're already both on campus. We already just walked out of both the same class together. It's the easiest thing in the world for us to just, like, start talking or end up at the coffee shop or, like, low-stakes, low-effort social interaction is really hard to come by in a major city. Absolutely. And schools are one of the opportunities to do that. I just want to say either of you can call me anytime. How cold is it outside, Liz? (laughs) Just kidding, because I'm alone right now. Aw, well, I'm never in Manhattan. Manhattan feels like the other end of the world. I got to go to Manhattan. I have a newborn child at home, by the way, so everything feels like a field trip. But, like, I was in Manhattan the other day, and I was like, oh, my God, the big city full of people going to work. <laughs> so many cars. Ah, yeah. I was like the, the horns. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna add one more thing to my film school discussion. Film school is a less insane decision than it was 20 years ago. 20 years ago, there weren't that many people working in film, and it was a very small industry, and there were very few things you can do. Honestly, in 2019, there is so much media content getting created. There are probably more U.S. senators than there are studio directors. So the idea that film school is going to be a path to studio directing, that is a roll of the dice. But, like, there is so much work out there making social media content, making videos for institutions, making videos for, like, participating. There's been such an explosion in this that I think that, you know, I would feel weird teaching in a film school if I didn't feel like my students were mostly going to be able to get jobs. So just for the record, even though I said we're done with this segment, I would make that same argument for why you sort of less need film school than ever oh, before. Because there's more work that you can get by just having a portfolio that you've put together, you know, that you can show your worth without having been through that very expensive training. Yeah. If you can do it without that. If you can. Right. Yeah. If you can put together an amazing, beautiful portfolio, there is work out there. And none of these jobs I'm talking about are going to check whether or not you went to film school. They just want to know if you can do the work. Yeah. But, like, I still look back on the fact that when I was at USC, they bragged about how less than 10 percent of their graduates work in film. It was like a a point of pride about how hard the industry was, where they were like, on average, in 10 years, less than 10 percent of you will be working in film. And I'm like, I look back and I'm like, then why are you charging so much money for this thing? (laughs) Whereas like now it's like at least there is like work in certain cities. But like actually I moved to St. Louis and I worked in film in St. Louis. Work, 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 work. Okay, we're moving on. Moving on. Charles, I think that uh, you're right, I will say. I'm, uh, you've convinced me of what you said, but I have no idea if uh, Liz or Eric agrees. But, uh, you know, here's my take. And uh, Liz or Eric, if you guys uh, have anything to add, please uh, feel free to jump in at any time. Look, there are worse places to go than film school. If you have the money and know 100% that it's something you want to make a career out of, then fuck it. Go for it. If you don't like it or aren't learning as much as you thought you would, then just drop out. A lot of the people I've talked to, filmmakers on the interview podcast, did go to film school for a little bit and then were like, ah, 
this isn't for me. I can do this by myself. The important parts of film school, as I think Charles mentions, are the connections you make, the experience you'll receive working on multiple films, and the ability to have a safety net. You're going to have access to equipment that you may not have in the real world if you're just starting out, and you're going to be able to make mistakes and not feel too shitty about them. You're going to have the opportunity to learn editing suites and technology and gear that you could potentially learn on your own, but if you're someone who thrives in a more academic environment over being an autodidact, then hey, do what works for you. The only way to learn to make movies is by making movies, period. School may make you more confident in the abilities to just take the first step and do so. For me, it was literally making the podcast and interviewing other filmmakers that provided me with just enough information to feel confident enough to go out and do it. And then I'll take what I learned on my last one and I'll put it towards the next one and so on and so forth until I give up or die. Death, right guys? So obviously one of the main topics on this podcast over the years has been movies. Movies, movies, movies. Making them, watching them, who's making them, all the things. And so we thought we would definitely be remiss if we didn't share who our favorite movie or director that we kind of discovered over the last three years was. So I'm going to kick it off. Um, I'm actually choosing a filmmaker rather than a specific film, and that is Alma Harrell. Uh, who you've heard me talk about on the show before. And here are a few reasons why she is someone I find inspiring and who's worth looking out for. Number one, she was ahead of the curve on the hybrid documentary trend, and her films Bombay Beach and Love True are two of the most creative and outside-the-box docs I've seen. Number two, she's not just in it for herself, so true to the No Film School ethos, she founded the Free the Bid movement to help get more women hired on commercials and therefore to get money to support their independent projects like many of their male counterparts do. Three, she collaborates with other really interesting artists, so her work leads to the discovery of kind of other interesting creatives, like Flying Lotus, who composed the original soundtrack for Love True, um, who I had not, admittedly had not heard of until I saw that documentary and then was like, wow, this guy. Um, in fact, a music video she directed for Icelandic band Sigur Rós, who I never know how to pronounce uh, uh, properly, Sigur Rós. Um, this was one of her first times working with actor Shia LaBeouf, which brings me to the final point that she is now transitioning, Alma Harrell is now transitioning to narrative, and her debut feature starring Shia LaBeouf is premiering at Sundance in a few weeks. I, for one, couldn't be more excited, and I really think this is a filmmaker to just keep an eye on. Everything she works on is going to be, is going to surprise you in some way. Is that Honey Boy? Yeah, Honey right? Boy. So, so I have two two things to add to that. One, it's pronounced sugar rose, and it's actually about being like a sugary, like fruity wine. Ha <laughs> That was a good pun. That's not true. I made that up. Oh, jeez. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, should I talk about knowledge? The, the credulous look on your faces when you believed <laughs> me made me feel so guilty. <laughs> I was like, maybe, maybe that's true. Oh. I don't think it's named after fruity wine, but maybe it is. Maybe it's it's sugar rose. And then, secondly, uh. I also want to really thank, I reached out to Alma because we were just hiring a full-time directing teacher at Fierstein where I teach, and we actually asked, and they put our job ad up on Free the Bid. Free the Bid's mostly about commercials, but we wanted to make sure, like when you're hiring for a teacher, there's like traditional places you do it, but we wanted to really make sure we were shaking the tree and trying to get the widest arena of possible candidates. And so thank you, Alma, for putting up a a non-commercially thing on Free the Bid. It was much appreciated. What about you, Charles? So I'm just going to pick a movie, and that movie is Sorry to Bother You, and Sorry to Bother You. So I feel a little bit cheated by history in, like, one very small way. In most ways, not cheated by history at all. But, like, I fell in love with movies during the 90s where, like, the 90s was this explosion of indie cinema that, like, legitimately 
really cool movies. I, I hesitate to say weird because, like, it's a very 90s, like, I'm a weird kid thing. But, like, just interesting, different, of their own voice. Unusual. Unusual, distinct movies were getting made and showing up in theaters. And you could talk about them. And, like, it was this explosion in the 90s. And I was too young to understand that it was, like, a brief history in time that didn't exist before. And it turns out wouldn't exist after. And that now you mostly go to the movies to see movies from, like, one or two universes of people in tights, um, some of which are very good. And Sorry to Bother You is, like, a 90s movie, but it came out in theaters now, and people could see it. And, like, I saw it opening weekend in Brooklyn, and the theater was packed, and people were having a good time. And it's, like, this very unique, very political movie. And, honestly, whenever you talk about political movies, especially in, like, L.A., people would always be like, ah, don't be an after-school special. Don't be so pedantic. And it's like, sorry to bother you, has a political viewpoint and is telling a story that is, like, has an opinion and it is awesome. And I love it. And um, it's the kind of movie that they say you can't really make anymore. And whenever people talk about the 90s indie movie renaissance, people are always like, well, that's on TV now. And, yeah, there's amazing character-driven, long narrative stuff on TV but not a lot of it that's this cool and different and fun. And Boots Riley just, like, got to make Sorry to Bother You, and it's amazing. Uh, Lakeith Stanfield was a few rows ahead of me on my flight to Sundance a few years ago. And it is, like, honestly, just him walking by me on the airplane, I don't think I've ever been in the physical presence of so much, like, animal charisma. Like, it, it's just like, you're a movie star. Like, why is he not starring in all of the movies? For Bo- those of you who don't know, by the way, Lakeith Stanfield plays the lead in Sorry in to Bother Sorry You. Sorry to Bother You. Helpful context. But shouldn't <laughs> I just happen to run into this guy on a plane? Like, but shouldn't he play the lead in all of the movies? He's great in Atlanta. But like. Not the wife. He probably shouldn't be in the wife. I haven't seen the no. wife yet. He, sh- he shouldn't play the wife. He should not play the wife. You are correct. You're right, Eric. Um, but we hear you. He's great. Uh, it's a furious movie. It's, an, it's a movie that like sees systems of oppression in everyday life and acknowledges that like, you know, a lot of people are like, well, that's just the way things are. But like. Sorry to bother you. It's like, no, there's a reason things are the way they are because it's benefiting certain people and that's fucking infuriating. So if you didn't see Sorry to Bother You in theaters, you should go watch it wherever it is now. It's super special. Now, I have to add something because I don't know if you know this, Charles, but I chose Sorry to Bother You as my favorite indie film of this last year. Oh, and we I do, didn't see that yeah, section. Yeah, so we do, um, For you listeners probably know, but every year at the end of the year, we do these year in review posts where we all write kind of caps, capsule reviews of our favorite films of the year, our best cinematography of the year, best scenes of the year. And they're some of my favorite posts of the year because they're so fun to sort of read, you know, where everybody that and get introduced to some new films so definitely check those posts out and I I added even some more context to what you just gave and I'll quickly just add that like you focused on the political side which is it really is a political movie but like you said when you say that it turns people off so I'll just add that it's also like a really entertaining snarky funny hilarious visually um, explosive movie yeah Boots Riley is now in like the top five directors named Boots I think (laughs) I didn't go top three Oh uh, yeah, okay. It's yeah. bold, but I, yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, for for mine, I chose the filmmaker Yancey Ford, who uh, Strong Island was chosen as my number one film of 2017, 
And Yancey Ford's debut feature, it's extremely personal and heart-wrenching and remains fresh in my mind and as one of my favorite viewing experiences over the past three years. And there was actually nothing special about the viewing experience itself. Uh, the first time I watched it, it was on a screening link merely hours before I had to host a Q&A with him at the Made in New York Media Center in Dumbo, Brooklyn. So I had to watch it and get ready for the Q&A, which I don't like to do, but uh, it was all within the same day. But I was so transfixed by the film. Uh, as much a commemoration as it is a eulogy, as confrontational as it is pleading, Yancey Ford's powerhouse documentary yearns for answers when none will suffice. Uh, this one is pretty, I guess, political in nature. Investigating the 1992 homicide of his brother William outside of an auto repair shop in Long Island, Ford's film examines the unanswered questions surrounding the events leading up to and following the untimely death. A murder mystery, though, this is this is not, and, and what's refreshing about the filmmaker's approach is his lack of interest in the main suspect. It's about the grief and the murder itself, not necessarily who committed the crime, if you will. Uh, I've only seen the film twice, but its memory lives on, as does the memory of Yancey's brother, and I look forward to seeing what the filmmaker does next. He has a lot of background I worked for POV for a while before becoming a filmmaker, and given the extreme personalness of this subject and this documentary, it'd be interesting to see what comes next. So interesting, that one. I still haven't seen it. It's on my list ever since you first mentioned it. But like, there's all these these true crime documentaries. It's been such a wave, and it sounds like this is such a different take on that same idea. Absolutely, yeah. It's about kind of the aftermath and after effects of a crime rather than who uh, who done it or investigate reporting. Really something special. If you're looking at a single director's body of work over the past three years that this podcast has been in existence, it's got to be Yorgos Lanthimos for me. He's come out with a film in 2016, 2017, and 2018, The Lobster, Killing of a Sacred Deer, and The Favorite, respectively. That is an insane output of insane films. Every single one of these films is incredibly unique in narrative, beautiful to look at, and features incredible performances from its leads. The Lobster is actually probably the least favorite of these three for me, and that is truly saying something. I think that The Favorite, not my favorite, but The Favorite, is a radical step forward for the director and a clear product of how a filmmaker can master his craft by pushing himself to the extreme with every project he makes and putting out work regularly. I also feel as though, unlike many directors who quote-unquote challenge themselves with each new film, Lanthimos really strives to push himself to the breaking point in every new piece he creates, in every aspect of film, whether it's through cinematography, stylized performances, or ridiculously contrived plot points. He doesn't focus on just one. He is somehow able to focus on every aspect. In terms of a filmmaker, he's everything that I'd strive to be. Coming from nothing, making challenging films, and forcing audiences to accept and love his raw, uncompromised vision. So now that we've looked back in our time machine, that's what it sounded like. You're not wrong, Liz. I want to look forward into our most anticipated movies of 2019. <laughs> I just want to say, I think Wayne's World is going to sue you for stealing their time machine noise. <laughs> well, now they'll sue us both. Uh-oh. I didn't make that noise. Mike Myers, leave me alone. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it's time to class up this podcast. What's the title, Liz, for your favorite? <laughs> well, you can always count on me to class up the joint, Eric. <laughs> Mine is called <laughs> um, The Death of Dick Long. <laughs> It would be a lot less classy if it were slightly death changed in word order. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, the deck, the death of. <laughs> 
The Death of Dick Long is a film coming up by Daniel Scheinert. Um, I have to say, I was discouraged when I first started looking at movies with confirmed release dates in 2019, because to Charles's point earlier, there seemed to be even more sequels than ever. Terminator fucking six, Rambo five, The Avengers four. I mean, come on. And I mean, I, I will say among the blockbusters, I'm most excited about Captain Marvel, which is not a, a sequel, but part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But I look to the Sundance program to get indie inspiration. Um, these aren't guaranteed to come out next year, but their spot in the festival lineup is a pretty good indicator. Um, so one of the Sundance movies I'm most excited about, again, is The Death of Dick Long uh, by Daniel Scheinert and shot by the prolific and beloved by this podcast, Ashley Connor. She, as we've said before, is our, our most repeated guests on the show. Uh, Scheinert is half of the writing directing duo Daniels with Daniel Kwan, who have also been guests on the podcast. And they won Best Directors at the 2016 Sundance Film Festival for their feature film Swiss Army Man, otherwise known as the Farting Corpse movie. I never actually saw it, but I've seen a bunch of their shorts, and I just feel like they're two of the freshest and most creative voices with their hearts in the right place. So even though this is just one of the Daniels, and frankly, the premise sounds a little dumb, it's about two guys trying to cover up the death of their bandmate, I'm still excited to see it because it's sure to be original and entertaining and just, again, fresh voices. Liz. Liz, Liz. Liz, Liz. Okay, this is going to be really short because not much has really been revealed as to the plot or anything, but a new Safdie Brothers movie is coming in 2019, produced by A24, internationally distributed by Netflix, and starring none other than Adam Sandler. It's called Uncut Gems, and it's hard to think we'll get anything less than vintage PTA Adam Sandler here, as the Safdies are incredibly gifted at blending comedy with drama. All we know about the film is that it is a quote-unquote American crime drama, and that if the Safdies' other films, Heaven Knows What and Good Time, are any indication, it takes place in New York City. It also stars Lakeith Stanfield, Judd Hirsch, Indina Menzel, Palm Clementif, and Eric, you'll appreciate this one, NBA legend Kevin Garnett. Oh, I knew you were, I was going to think, I was thinking about choosing this one too, Eric. Uh... So for mine, I chose The Beach Bum by Harmony Corinne, and there were a few that I kind of played with putting on this list. I thought of like Jordan Peele's Us and oh, yeah. Richard Linklater's Where'd You Go, Bernadette, the Kate Blanchett one. Uh, but I went with The Beach Bum because I'm a fan, at least from afar and sometimes with severe reservation, of uh, filmmaker Harmony Corinne. If you haven't seen Trash Humpers, that's a movie that should be seen, if not endured, at least once. Uh, Since the days of his screenplay for Larry Clark's Kids made headlines back in the 1990s, modern-day audiences probably know him best as the filmmaker behind Spring Breakers, and his latest Florida-set film, The Beach Bomb, looks appropriately insane. Starring Matthew McConaughey in a role he was either born or sentenced to play, uh, the Red Band trailer that's come out looks appropriately drugged out and very soaked in neon colors, (laughs) which makes sense because the film is being distributed by neon. So I thought, you know, I just don't know how they work these things. Uh, It also packs in a solid number of quotable lines in just a few seconds, speaking of the trailer, and courtesy of Mr. McConaughey, and even Snoop Dogg shows up. Martha Stewart's friend Snoop Dogg is in this? Martha Stewart's friend Snoop Dogg shows up in a Harmony Korine movie. (laughs) Um, Yeah, between this and Where Do You Go, Bernadette, which I mentioned, it should be a strong year for India tours, flirting with the more mainstream. I don't know if the beach bomb is really going to cross over into the mainstream. It'll probably be a limited art house hit uh but it looks pretty bonkers so that was pretty but i mean is it kind of a return to the mechanisance yeah it kind of looks like his the big lebowski 
I was going to say, when of. you said there were like these little one-liners, it reminded me of, um, you know, we keep getting older, but they stay yeah, the same yeah. age. And he's definitely like someone who I, it appears to be high throughout the entire movie. And he's kind <laughs> of just like, whoa, where am I? You know, kind of this kind of like the dude, his version of the dude kind of thing. So it mm. does look well, like Well, I'm looking forward to seeing Beach Bum, the Eric Lures story, too. I'm going to, I'll perform it. Send me to Miami and I'll recreate this film without having watched it yet. But that's my, <laughs> my most anticipated. Honestly, Indie Film Weekly audience, if you guys would, would please join together and kickstart us taking Eric to Miami and making a remake of the Beach Bum without a watching pre-make? the Beach Bum remake. Oh my God. You heard it here first. Who needs to watch it? Oh, uh, now I don't know. I disagree. Oh, it'd be so good. Nice. Do you have enough hair for cornrows? I could grow it out. It would take a couple of years, guys. So just, you know. Not, I'm not sorry yet, to say that I believe these couple years are the years you're getting less hair, not more, my friend. Oh, boy. Okay. I guess we're going to have to remake The Death of Dick Long. <laughs> <laughs> pre-makes should totally be a thing, though. Oh like, based God. on the pre-makes. trailer, you should just go out and <laughs> pre-make. I love it. People would watch that shit on YouTube for sure. Uh, I bet pre-makes is already a hashtag on Twitter by mm. the time this episode is done. Sweet. So, you know, usually we do our weekly words of wisdom where I come on and I enlighten the crowd with the words of wisdom by brilliant filmmakers. Like Matthew McConaughey. Like Matthew McConaughey has always been a great contributor to the segment. Uh, and this time we thought, why don't we actually look towards ourselves? Let's look inwards to giving out our weekly words of wisdom to close um, out, you know? All the years we've been having filmmakers give you these words of wisdom, but we're not, we're smart cookies. You know, we, we have some advice. And so we thought we would uh, do that. So I'll kick it off. My biggest takeaway from the podcast is the realization of how powerful a podcast can be educationally. So like Liz, when I brought you in to speak at Fierstein last year, how many of my students knew you not from like all of the writing, but from the podcast was really surprising to me. And then I would like. Not to me. I'm wicked famous. This is true. Um, But like I'd wander in AB and people would be shouting like, I was just listening to you. Like, I was really shocked and surprised that podcasts were such a great learning tool. Yes, I totally listened to podcasts before I joined this one, but, like, mostly at entertainment and interview ones, and I hadn't really listened to many newsy or educational ones. And, like, this particular podcast format has really opened my eyes and surprised me to the power of the medium. And now I listen to a much more diverse array of podcasts myself, including many more, like, edutainment podcasts. And I really want to thank you for asking me to participate way back two and a half years ago in June of 16. I have learned so much from getting to be here. Charles, it's been such a joy to have you. And we're so lucky with uh, with all the insights that you've provided to our listeners over the years. And I, I will say I, I've been on for only like a year and a month or so, like 13 months, 12 and a half months. Uh, and I was very nervous about joining the podcast at first. So it was it was a very it was every Wednesday we'd after the spend the morning writing the script and you know it was always like a big thing and a lot of people don't know this we record in Liz's home. Uh, this is Liz's bathroom. This is Liz's actually. bathroom. We record every week. It's time to reveal all the secrets. Uh, it's it's inspired by Exile on Main Street. They recorded some of those tunes in the bathroom in the French Riviera. Exactly. And believe another it or not, Liz. another Liz. <laughs> 
Um, that see, that's why um, you sometimes hear splashing on the podcast because I'm actually in the tub. Exactly. So that's why I was pretty, you know, nervous about it. And I, I think also you should have been nervous. You had to fill Emily Booter's shoes, that's and true. now is the appropriate time on the podcast. It's true. And when I got this job, I did go back and listen to a bunch of them. Uh, so I was familiar enough with the format, but you kind of have to find your way into it. And I think it was maybe the drug sniffing puppets. That did it. Oh, yeah. Or, or something where you can kind of just let your guard down. And I think we started laughing for about 25 minutes and we had to stop recording that episode. <laughs> I will say this isn't really our word. You haven't even gotten into your words of wisdom no, yet. No, no, sorry. Just so Because our listeners are, you know, getting a little behind the scenes peek here, you all have no idea how much editing John has done in these podcasts, especially of Eric and I cracking yes. up. You're not wrong, Liz. And like, Never me. I'm perfect every right. time. This is one take. <laughs> but there's so much laughing and it's really been fun. You know, it's really been a lot of fun and I hope that you know if, if I had all my druthers and we had all the money to pay John I would just have like an outtakes episode that's all giggles and all the weird shit we giggled about oh god the sounds that we make sometimes been <laughs> in the tub you this know this is still why we can't broadcast in Arkansas <laughs> anyway Eric so anyway, what are your sort of big my, takeaways alright so mine are pretty a little sentimental because um, we kind of <laughs> talked about when about the use of film school that sometimes this industry can feel very cutthroat and competitive, exclusive, and very hard to break into. And all these things can be true, but I would say try not to let the negative aspects of it dissuade you from going after your interests. And that's true of the film industry, but of many things in art-related. Uh, all gatekeepers eventually change, and great new work is seen each year. And you should also, I guess, quote-unquote, find your tribe, which is find the peers, whether through film school or other means, that you want to work with and hold on to them and be there when they have projects that need completion as well. Because you learn by doing, and the more you can do for your peers, if they're smart, kind-hearted people, it will come back to you twofold. Uh, the more you're open about the projects you're working on, the more of a reality it becomes. Sometimes filmmakers can suffer from imposter syndrome, which is like, I'm not really a filmmaker. Who am I? I'm just pretending to be one. Why is this the right career for me? But that's something to work through and overcome if you can. And film shouldn't just be defined by story or budgetary constraints. So if you have the drive to make it at whatever limited means, you can find a way. And that may take some mental gymnastics and adjustments on your part. That's not meant to sound hokey either. You should think practical and minimize and start get started on your work. So hopefully that was not too heartfelt. Uh, I was looking to add a joke in there, but didn't work out this time. But those are my words of wisdom. Aw. Well, mine dovetails pretty nicely with what you all have said. Um, I will leave everybody with an earworm. <laughs> You are not alone. Oh, Dear Evan Hansen. What? That's from Dear Evan Hansen, the Broadway musical. It's a Michael Jackson song, you millennial. Oh. <laughs> Anyways, you are not alone. That's my point. And I mean this from both sides of the coin. Through this show and the site, we've been exposed to filmmakers around the world, and everybody faces similar challenges, roadblocks, self-doubt, etc. So you're not alone in that way. But you're also not alone in that there are large groups of people, seen and unseen, that can help you get your projects made. There are generous filmmakers sharing their learnings and experiences to help you get through roadblocks. <clears throat> no, I'm not just talking about us. I'm talking about people like Jim Cummings comes to mind as one of the sort of more recent examples who made a feature and then has done tons to sort of get his um, his you know learnings out there for everyone. There are funders. There are other filmmakers and crew willing to jump on to great projects for trade or low rates. There really are thousands out there, and you're in a better position to reach out to them than ever. 
So with this show or without, we also are always rooting for you. And uh, just, you know, just want to remember that that you're not alone in this and you can do it. Okay. Try not and cry now, Liz, because uh, it's my turn. And um, I think that you're really going to like what I have to say here. Um, So if you could just be quiet until I am done finishing what I have to say, that would be uh, very, very nice. So here, here I go. I think that one of the hardest things to learn as an artist, period, is learning to trust that people actually want to hear what you have to say. It's something that I struggle with all the time. When I did the screening of my short at Videology last fall, and I really have to thank you guys in the room for coming to that once again, I ended it with a Q&A, and I had a really difficult time with it. It's not that I wasn't prepared for the questions that were being asked. It's that I truly didn't believe that a room full of people wanted to stick around and listen to me talk about my own movie for 20 minutes. I thought everyone wanted to just go drink. I just, that's what I wanted to do. And, you know, because of that, I was nervous. I made myself feel hurried. And I ended up honestly kind of feeling like an idiot for not believing myself for a few months after that experience happened. The point is, this show has time and time again been a place for me to break that fear. And perhaps more importantly, practice speaking about topics I think I know something about in a confident way. It didn't, oh wait, no, I know, I know stuff about in a confident way. There you go. See, we're always learning. It didn't always used to be this way, so thank you all, you listeners, not to be confused with the people in this room here with me, um, though I thank them too, uh, for sticking around and uh, letting me work through this. So all that being said, believe in yourself, especially when you're speaking about your own work, whether that's you know crowdfunding for your movie or, you know, trying to bring people onto your short, or even trying to get people to watch your film. Uh, If you believe in yourself, then people will believe in you. And if you don't believe in yourself, then pretend like you know what you're talking about until you actually do. And then, make shit. That's it. That's it for me. Eric, are you crying? I thought it was going to be Liz. Guys, is that the end of Indie Film Weekly? Do we give our shout-outs to all of our social media handles? I thought we were going to have, like, a surprise ending where, you know... John shows up? John shows <laughs> oh, up. Or it's, sorry, scratch that. Where it's to be continued or we get abducted by aliens and it's like, tune in next week? Question Eric's going to jump out of the tub. Yeah, jump out of the tub. <laughs> you know, I guess... The nice thing about it being so sweaty in this bathroom, because we've got the, the, the shower on, is people can't see the tears. That's they can't nice. see the tears. You don't know if it's condensation or if it's tears. I'm not crying. You're crying. Uh, so, Listen, we love you guys. It's been a real pleasure to do this um, for you and with you over the years. And uh, we wish you all the best of luck in your projects. Keep reading nofilmschool.com. John will still be bringing you interview podcasts every Monday. So if you want to still hear the interview podcast, you can still subscribe to the No Film School podcast on iTunes. And we hope that you really will stay in touch, um, even with Eric. Yes. I'm still waiting for someone to tweet at me. It's been years, I think. You've never been tweeted at? Uh, Maybe once or twice, but they weren't really that great people. People don't know it's Eric with a K. That's right. That's why we have to always push that every week. So on that note, uh, I'm on Twitter at LizFilm. I'm at Eric with a K, Eric Lures, L-U-E-R-S. You won't find me. <laughs> uh, I'm Charles Hain. 
H-A-I-N-E on the Instagram and the Twitter. And I, I'm no longer I've, – I've stopped logging into Facebook. I'm taking January off. So don't try and find me there. Oh, that's you won't great. won't find me there. Yeah, I'm Liz Film on Twitter too. And uh, John is at Jim underscore. Wow, that really is annoying. It's the last episode. Oh, you're right. It's the last episode. So let me try this again. John is at – Jim underscore Jim underscore John. John is at Jim underscore John. Three. Underscore Jim. Is that right? Jim, John, Tilda. No, it's John, Tilda, Jim, Tilda. stop. Stop. John Fusco, the producer and editor of of this show, who is still with No Film School, is Jim underscore John underscore Jim. Jim, 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 Jim. Last time that's Jim, 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 Jim. There, I did it. No Film School's at No Film School. And uh, we're out for now. We'll miss you guys. That's good gear, Charles.